Hi. Welcome to the second episode of Tell Me Muse, a podcast where I, Cindy, a McGill Classics student, interview some of my peers on their research to try to figure out what exactly is classics. Today, I speak with Neha Raman, a Roman historian and 2020 McGill Classics grad. We'll be talking a bit about her experience as an undergrad at McGill, especially her involvement in the McGill Classics Students Association, her current research about representations of youth in Imperial Rome, Roman sacrificial scenes, and how the master's degree at Cambridge is treating her. So let's jump right in. So just as a general starter, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, your study interests, fun facts, just anything? I'm originally from Toronto, Ontario. I grew up there. I fell in love with classics, and we can also get into this in high school, where I started learning Latin. My other passions around that time were mostly in English. I often say that like my shadow career, if I wasn't in classics, would be as like a Shakespeare scholar. So I was really into English and all that stuff. Because of that, also, I'm really into creative writing and specifically writing poetry. I write a lot of poetry that sort of has like classical themes in it. And so that's just kind of what I enjoy doing. Another one of my hobbies is reading for pleasure. My report cards growing up were always like voracious reader. My last, I guess, like big hobby or passion or interest aside from classics is politics and activism. And so I was really involved with student organizing, both at McGill and also in high school and Being politically aware is also something that I'm really passionate about and interested in. As for what I study in classics, I'm a Roman historian, and the focus of my master's degree has been about youth and adolescence, and so it's like a social history of the Roman family. I'm really interested as well in dynamics of class and looking at the lives of enslaved people through material culture and inscriptions, and so those are all sort of my research interests very firmly, though, in Rome. So how did you end up at McGill University? I knew I wanted to stay in Canada for my degree. Like I said, I was from Toronto. I didn't want to move too far from home, but I also didn't really want to go somewhere too close or somewhere too similar to what I was used to. So Montreal isn't a radically different city from Toronto, but it has the French thing, which I was really interested in. McGill was a great school for me because I was really interested in languages and I was looking at specifically robust humanities departments. I also really liked the look of it when I toured. I could really picture myself living there for four years and they had a good amount of support in the things that I wanted to study, even though I didn't really know I wanted to study classics yet. And it seemed like they had just like a good sort of student culture and also around the sort of political things that I was interested in. So student organizing, Mikkel's known for that, Montreal's known for that. And so that was also something that I was looking at when I was making my considerations. That feels like it was a lifetime ago that I was thinking about that, but those were all the factors I remember. Let's go a little bit into your social justice work. What were the political organizations you were associated with? For sure. So when I first got to McGill, you can do Frosh, but I chose to do Rad Frosh, which was set up by Midnight Kitchen, and they are the free food bank situation at McGill. They also organize a Frosh that's sort of like an alternative Frosh that is mostly consisted of workshops and about different sort of rad, quote unquote, topics like gentrification and prison abolition things like that. And so that's how we kind of got introduced to the activist political scene in Montreal and in McGill specifically. 
what I was a part of, I volunteered with, and I participated in demonstrations with SPHR McGill, Students for Palestinian Human Rights. In first year, I was part of F Word, the feminist magazine. I submitted a couple of poems. I volunteered with Race Project and Res Project, the activities where we would go into first year residences and talk about themes of equity and things like that. And I was also an AUS equity committee member for one year. And it actually sounds like you had a very well thought out list of criteria for future universities. I remember when I was doing the same thing, my two checkboxes to tick were old school and far. So I'm from Vancouver and I ended up at McGill. But you mentioned that you were introduced to Latin in high school. Is this how you learned about classics as a field and how you ended up in the classics program? Did you come in first year determined, decided, knowing that you're going to major in classics? Or was there more of a meandering path that brought you to your degree? So the reason I took Latin in high school is kind of funny. I went to a really big public high school in the middle of Toronto, and they just offered a lot of really interesting, quirky classes. I was explaining my some of my high school classes just to my friends in university, and they were like, you had a class called Dreams and Visions? And it's true, I did. And I had a class called Masks, and I had a class called Bias and Propaganda. So a lot of weird things that were going on in that school, including Latin. And I was really, really excited about and into what we studied. We studied Latin at a very sort of easygoing pace. We used the Cambridge Latin course. And so you look at the little stories and you follow the characters. And it really made me fall in love with Latin because I thought that it was a really cool way to find out about Roman culture, which I thought was so different from anything else that I'd ever looked at, but also something that was so cool that it could be unlocked by learning a really interesting language with grammar that I found really well-structured and fascinating. I was learning French at the same time. And so those common roots were things that were really interesting to me. I really thought though that my love of Latin was something like really linguistic in origin rather than historical or classical. And I thought that I would have to give up the historical aspect because maybe I was more interested in the linguistic side of things. So I was really looking at languages and other sorts of linguistic focused aspects of classics when I was looking at what to pursue in university. But what ended up happening was that in my first year, I wanted to continue on with Latin, but I didn't want to take a beginner's class. I couldn't find a intermediate class that wasn't at 8am and everyone and their mother told me don't take an 8am class in your first year first semester so I said okay fine I won't what's the next best thing there was an ancient Greek class being taught at 10am so I took that and it was like the hardest class I've ever taken ancient Greek like absolutely blew my mind it was like not the same as Latin at all it was so hard, but it was also such like a challenge that I'd never faced before that by the end of it, I was like, you know, I've made it this far, I've conquered this much, why not take the intermediate? And those are famous last words, because from then on, I just took more and more classics courses and really became involved with the Classic Students Association. And I honestly credit them more for me getting all the way into classics. But that was sort of the transition from high school into university was just wanting to continue on with Latin, but accidentally stumbling upon ancient Greek and that being the gateway to everything. And I know that the Classic Student Association made up a big component of your undergraduate experience, so I do want to come back to that. But first, how did you come to realize that Roman history was your area? Was it a spark, or was this just something that Latin gradually led you towards? It was a big sort of point of confusion and contention, actually, all the way up until I was applying for grad school, whether or not I was really going to pursue Rome or Greece, because I was really interested in imperial era Rome, post-Augustus stuff, everything to do with inscriptions and the kinds of literature of that era, the Ovids, the Virgils, what have you. 
but I was also maybe even equally interested in Hellenistic Greece and like Alexandria and the library and Theocritus and Apollonius and those poets of that time. So up until summer of 2019, I did not know which one I was going to choose. Then in summer of 2019, I went on the dig to Salapia. And so at the end of that dig, that was a six week long course in the south of Italy. I learned that archaeology wasn't going to be for me because I was terrible at it. But at the end of that, we took one week off to go look around Rome. And that's when I fell in love. And that's when I was like, oh, okay, this is something I could see myself revisiting. You know, the city is so full of history and it's history that I've always enjoyed learning about and something that I could see myself as I'm doing now, writing a whole master's thesis about and just thinking about all of the time. And specifically, it was seeing the Arapacus, which is this massive building that they've recreated to an incredible degree in the middle of Rome that has these depictions of all these Roman youth on it. And so that ended up being my thesis topic as well. And so it was that art piece that specifically was like the deciding factor when I could see it in the flesh and that really made it that decision feel sort of concrete. I'll get you to describe the Arapacus in detail a little later on since I've never seen it in person myself, and it holds such a central role in your paper. But before we turn to your paper, I'm wondering, have you touched Greek since you finished your undergraduate program? Since you loved it so much, it was your gateway into classics, have you so much as looked at a Greek letter since you entered Cambridge? I have, actually. I'm very proud to say I didn't think that it would happen once I got to Cambridge because our classes are pretty structured here and they want you to really focus on what you're studying. And not that there's not some room for breadth, but there wasn't a ton. I found out that there was, uh, just during orientation week, that there was a class on reading manuscripts. And the way that it worked was that for the first term, we would be reading Greek manuscripts. And for the second term, we would be reading Latin ones. The Greek manuscript just happened to be the manuscript of the Cyclops. So I felt like it was a sign. I felt like I couldn't resist and I really wanted to look at it. We can also talk about translating the Cyclops, obviously, in more detail. But one of the things that I'll say is that the biggest challenge was trying to work through this ancient text that made no sense. And once I looked at the manuscript, I was surprised in that a lot of the issues that I had with the Greek back then was actually not my fault. It was because the manuscript is all messed up and we were just suffering the consequences of really, really challenging piece of sort of transmission from the ancient world there. But I did look at Greek with Richard Hunter. I love that for our classes. It's almost like we have a built-in excuse. Like we can always just say, oh, it's not my fault. It's the manuscript. Like some scribe in the 14th century made a mistake and it's not my fault. Exactly. And just a point of clarification for our audience, the Cyclops text that you're referring to is a Greek play that you translated back during your undergraduate degree as one of the directors of the classics play. And this actually circles our conversation all the way back to the Classic Students Association. And that's like the student governing body that represents classic students specifically to the Greater Arts Undergraduate Society at McGill. So you were the president of the CSA for two consecutive years. So that's from 2018 to 2019, and then from 2019 to 2020. Can you talk to us about how you got involved with the CSA? So ever since high school, I've been like a clubs and associations person extracurriculars were always my favorite thing to do in high school and I wanted to really keep that up and so I was just looking for extracurriculars anything that sort of fit any of my interests the only thing that really stuck was the CSA like the thing that I can genuinely say that I did for all four years of McGill as an extracurricular was the CSA and it happened because I was doing the freshman thing roaming around the many orientation tables and 
I saw just a bunch of classics books set up on a table and I thought I found my people and I had a lovely chat with some of the people who were manning the desks, one of whom I'm still friends with to this day. And so I was signed up for like notifications. And so weeks pass and I'm getting into the McGill groove and I get a little notification that CSA elections are happening and that they have a first year representative position. I was really interested in doing that. I think there was some chaos that day and I was like, I'm not going to make it in time. So I was like running down the hill while sending a frantic email being like, I'm so sorry, I'm going to be like five minutes late. I understand that if I can't be on the CSA because of my crime of being five minutes late. And they were very cool with it. They were like, don't worry, it's okay. (laughs) It's a very chill vibe. When I got there, you know, heaving and out of breath, I found that, you know, it was a very relaxed environment. I was the only person to run for the first year representative position. So I got the role. And I had a really lovely year helping out with wine and cheeses, meeting a lot of people who were into classics. And that inspired me to run again for VP internal. That was a fun year that I like to call my unpaid intern year because VP internal is a very busy, very thankless job. But again, I I just sort of grew closer and closer with the people in the department who are all really lovely people, the professors, the grad students, and the fellow undergrads. A lot of them are still my best friends. And we met through and trauma bonded through the, you know, many shenanigans that go along with organizing classics events. And so after my year as VP internal, I was just inspired to run for president because I felt like I'd had a really robust year with a lot of experience in sort of like the very detailed nitty gritty of the day-to-day running of the CSA. And president is also a pretty thankless job. So I was already accustomed to that. So I was happy to sort of transition into that role. And again, it was just friends and mentors and people who were super supportive at every stage that made it so that I always wanted to come back and I always wanted to keep participating in the CSA. It was really fun. Do you have any advice for undergrads who might currently be considering taking on a bigger role in the CSA? So something that requires more responsibility, maybe a bit more time and effort. Having experienced so many roles, do you have any tips about how you balance schoolwork with extracurriculars or any anecdotal advice that you can give? The mindset that I had going into CSA and the mindset that we sort of had as a collective that was really healthy and that really promoted having a good CSA and university work balance was that we took our jobs seriously, but we didn't treat them like it was the end of the world. Like if something went wrong, and they very rarely did because the worst that can happen is your room booking falls through. If something went wrong, we came together and we dealt with it. We didn't panic. We didn't necessarily take on more than we could chew. And then we didn't like have an attitude of like chickens running with our heads cut off about our events. Like there was a modicum of panic to do with making sure that you have a successful event, like a wine and cheese. It it can be a lot of stress. You want to make sure that you get all the wine, you get all the food and that everything gets to where it needs to be in time. But know that everyone else on the CSA has your back. We're a pretty big exec, like all things considered, because we have all of our VP roles, but also we also have members at large. I remember that all four years that I did it, if anyone ever needed any sort of help, they just reached out in our group chat or at meetings and people rushed to support them. And so the advice that I would have is that if you are really passionate about extracurriculars and and about classics and you want to take on a bigger role, I would say go for it because you will have a great support system if ever you feel overwhelmed. And I found it not too difficult to balance it with everything else that McGill demanded from us. And of course, another fun thing associated with the CSA is the Classics Play, which is put on annually by Classics students. And we had referenced this earlier, but you also directed the Cyclops one year. Could you give a brief explanation about what the Classics Play is, how you got involved in it, and what the overall experience directing it was like? 
Yes. So the classics play is not part of the CSA, but often people who are also in the CSA do the classics play. But there's often been cases where people who are not in the CSA at all do it. It's actually a project, I think, started by Professor Lynn Kozak, and they've been running it from, I think, like 2010 or something. The website has the whole archive, but it started from them and then has gained a lot of support and participation from CSA people. I co-directed the play, actually, with Daniel Whittle, who was an MA student at the time, but he was the president in 2017 to 2018. So the Cyclops, we translated it because it is the only fully extant satyr play that is still remaining. And so I'll just provide some context. Satyr plays were the semi-comedic play that would take part at the end of a tragic tetralogy at something like the Greater City Dionysia, which was the big festival to Dionysus that involved performance as part of the worship that went on in Athens. So every series of tragedies would have a satyr play at the end. Scholars sort of debate as to why, like maybe it was a bit of comic relief after three really heavy plays, maybe it was something for the kids, maybe it was another sort of intricate part of the worship of Dionysus, we're not sure. But all we know is that most of them have only survived in fragments, and the satyr play that we have the most of is the Cyclops. The Cyclops was potentially by Euripides. And it was at the end of three tragedies that are lost to us. So not much context really with what's going on there. But it is a comedic retelling of the uh, events of Book 9 of Homer's Odyssey, where Odysseus and his companions encounter the Cyclops, Polyphemus. It differs from Homer's story because instead of just showing up and it's just the Cyclops and it being kind of a harrowing and dangerous journey, It turns out that there is a group of rowdy satyrs who are there to greet them, led by their father, Silenus, who has this Abaddon Costello routine with Odysseus. And so it's a fun time. They get there and they're, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. And they just get into some hilarious shenanigans. My experience of directing this was it was a lot of fun. It was a really, really busy couple of months that we worked on this Cyclops because when you do the classics play, as director, you're also kind of the producer. Not usually. Usually Lynn is there to help quite a bit, but our year they were on maternity leave. And so we didn't really have them there with us. So it was a bit of a challenge, but Dan and I worked together really well. And we started translating it in the summer of 2018. The process moved pretty quickly from there where we got together in September, finalized the script. Then we started doing auditions in October. November, we got rehearsals started. And then November, December, January, we rehearsed. And then February, the first week of February, we performed our show. We had three shows and then a matinee that we do for the Montreal community out in Westmount. And the show itself took place just downtown. I definitely took on more of an administrative role. So I was doing a lot of the room bookings. I was doing a lot of the managing the props and everything. I made the big Cyclops head out of like foam board and I you know, individually hot glued beard hairs onto it one night. We sort of delegated. So Daniel handled the actors and he was more in charge of ringleading them into and making sure that everything was going on well with them. It was a lot of fun. We did musical interludes. We played like RuPaul songs and Usher and just added our own little sort of comedic flair to it because I would say the biggest challenge of doing the play because it was a comedy was trying to translate the ancient humor into something that a modern audience could appreciate and laugh at. And I hope we were successful in that, but that was our biggest stressor, was making sure that people could find it funny in in some way. 
Yeah, for sure. It was a great watch. It was actually the first classics play I ever went to. The So the year you directed was my first year in university, and I still remember elements of it, so it definitely made a lasting impact. And now just to wrap up this section before we turn to talk about your paper and about your research, tell us a little bit about Cambridge. What was the application process like? Did you always know you wanted to end up there, or were there other factors that pushed you in their direction? And this is a really exciting moment for you because you're almost done. So looking back at your year, what has been your impression of your degree? Like, out of five stars, what would you give it? Um, okay, lots of questions, good questions. Applying for grad school was something that I did because I sort of felt like at the end of my four-year degree, I felt like I wasn't done with classics and I kind of wanted to see what else I could do. And I was encouraged to apply directly for a PhD. And I don't think I was quite ready for one. And so the places that I applied to were Princeton, Stanford, and UChicago for PhDs that would have been five to seven year PhDs. And then I applied to the University of Toronto and to Cambridge for one year master's degrees. And so I clearly, when I was applying, didn't exactly know what I was going to do. And, and I wanted to kind of see where I was accepted and see if that could help me make my decision. And it ended up doing so. I didn't get into any of my PhD programs. And I think that that was for the best because my idea, my proposal, and also like the place where I was at, even though before we knew about the pandemic, I really wasn't ready for a PhD. And I learned that actually by doing the one-year MA, that that was the case. And so I was deciding by sort of March, 2020 between Toronto and Cambridge. And then I got the news that I got a Gates scholarship. And so that kind of made my decision for me, um, where I felt like despite the challenges that would happen with, you know, coming here during a pandemic, most of my classes and stuff ended up being online. I felt like, you know, we didn't really know that at the time back in March, you know, knowledge and, and naivete about the pandemic has been interesting and fluctuating. And so in March, I thought this is too good of an opportunity. I don't really want to pass this up. And so I'm going to do the year obviously fully funded and see where it takes me and see what happens. Cambridge wasn't necessarily something that I had looked into really in detail. I think that when I was applying, I was researching more about the PhDs and more about stuff in the States because that's more of where my mind was at the time. But I'm so glad that I did end up coming here and that I decision did fall into place because I really like the way that the MPhil has sort of structured because that's that sort of helped me realize a lot of things about my place in classics and where I want to go in the future. So the way that the program, the MPhil is structured is that you are mostly doing your own research. You come in with a proposal, you're assigned a supervisor, and you write three small 5,000 word essays throughout the year, and then you write one big dissertation. And all of it is hinged on your original research and your topic. And in between, you do little classes, but they don't actually ask you to do any homework or anything for them. They're more for like discussion. And so you can sort of like widen your breadth of knowledge. And I've done a lot of presentations since coming here, because in a lot of those classes, you get an opportunity to share a bit of your research, get some feedback from your peers. And so despite the isolation of the pandemic, it's been very communicative in that sense, or they try to make it so at least. So how would I rate my experience? I may have an answer that's not a thousand percent positive because I, like I said, I was very glad to have the one year to really evaluate my place in classics, think about what I want to do. And I think that I need a break from classics. And that's because I don't want to be an academic. 
it's been good to learn that here that the kinds of demands of academia and the difficulties of the job market are things that are very like survivable and like if you're really really passionate about it and you really want to do it you can get a job in academia but I have sort of sorted out my priorities and have found that for me that's not necessarily the ideal or the path that would make me the happiest and so I really do see my MA as pretty terminal the other thing that I've kind of learned is that I really like my research and I really like the research of my peers that's innovative and new and kind of pushing the envelope but I still think that at Cambridge, because it's such an old institution, and maybe because it's sort of set in its ways, I've felt a little bit of pushback on the front of trying things that are new and trying things that are creative and trying things that are innovative. And I find that there's a lot more positive reception of people who are kind of doing more standard classics and things that are, I think, things that have already been done, but maybe they have a new perspective on them, but that aren't necessarily wildly new topics or topics that really centered the kind of marginalized and the more understudied groups that I'm really interested in. And so I'm still sort of working out my feelings about this year and I'm still kind of in the thick of it, but I had a good time. I'd rate it like a three out of five stars. Yeah, that's totally fair. And I really appreciate the honesty. I mean, it's so difficult sometimes to see what goes on behind the facade of an ancient institution. So to really have these comments is quite insightful and I think really helpful for anybody listening. And this actually acts as a great springboard to launch us into talking about your paper, which, might I add, is not very traditional in the sense that it's not a topic that immediately comes to mind when you say classics. And I'm really glad that it's not a mainstream area of study because that's one of the goals for this podcast which is to probe the breadth of classics and to really figure out just how much is encapsulated under this umbrella term. So I'm really excited to get to talk to you about your research and about your investigation into youth in Rome. So this is one of the three smaller papers that you wrote during your master's degree, and it focuses on Roman imperial reliefs and in particular two individuals within them. For anyone who might be unfamiliar with art history or ancient art programs, Roman reliefs are just an art form where they would carve images onto stone and then these would be usually displayed somewhere. And the ones that we're talking about today are specifically focused on the imperial regime. So this is after Augustus took power and he just had this sculptural program going on where he had specific images that he wanted repeated that were to represent himself, his family, his power, his ideology for a newly peaceful Rome. And he would have these very particular scenes carved out onto stone and put up around Rome. The scenes that you're analyzing in particular are sacrificial scenes. And the two individuals that you're interested in are the Camilli and the Victimari. So just really briefly, could you cover who they are and what kinds of roles they play? For sure. So in Roman Reliefs of Sacrifice, you have a lot of different players in action performing the motions of a sacrifice. And sometimes these actors will be children or adolescents. And the ones that are particularly always kids and always from noble families and are usually boys but can also be girls are the Camilli or the Camilli. 
and their acolytes, their assistants to the sacrificant. And they're often in reliefs front and center. They look visibly very young and they have a role of basically just holding a box of sacrificial items up to the sacrificant and they watch as the ceremony happens and basically learn from it. And that's kind of their role in the motions of the sacrifice. The other group that I've sort of brought into the same discussion about the Camilli are the Victimari. They are not necessarily young people or youths, and often in the reliefs, they'll be just depicted as adults. There are cases actually when young people would play this role. In my dissertation, I'm looking at a lot of funerary inscriptions. So I hadn't found this when I was writing this paper, but I have it now for sort of like background information. But I have this epitaph of a 19-year-old boy. And in his epitaph, it says that he served as a victimarius. And so he's not particularly a young child as like the Camille would be depicted, but he's still what we would consider a teenager, maybe a very young adult. And so adolescence is kind of what I'm looking at in terms of making an age limit for these roles. And so this is why I sort of argue that I can consider them together. The victimarius is the person who is in charge of herding the sacrificial animal to the altar. And they have a very important role because in Roman ideas of sacrifice, if the animal is seen not to be willingly going to the altar, that's seen as a bad omen. And that's seen as the sacrifice going wrong. And so to make sure that the sacrifice goes right, it's really important that this victimarius has a good grip on this animal and that they're totally in control. And so often they're depicted as older men, but they're very muscular. And the other thing about them is that this role was usually played by enslaved people or freed people because it was a very dirty role. It was discussed in ancient literature as something kind of disgusting and beneath the stature of the elites that were in more prominent roles in the sacrifice. But in my paper, I sort of show that they are still very prominent in reliefs that immortalize sacrifice in art. And so their importance actually can't be denied despite their lower status or the dirty nature of their work, because it was equally crucial for the success of the sacrifice. How do you tell the age of figures in sacrificial reliefs? That's a really good question. So for the Camille, you can usually tell because they're usually physically very small. And so they'll be maybe half the height of the adult doing like the actual sacrifice or the priest in the relief. A good example is on one of the reliefs of Marcus Aurelius, the Camille is very, very small and just barely sort of clearing the altar in terms of height. The other way that you can tell is that they'll have their hair done up in kind of a curled style, which was popular among young boys who were in sort of elite families. And they would also do this to make them look a bit more ambiguously gendered. And often you have poetry and ancient sources talking about fine curled hair on women. And so when you see them on young boys, it shows that they could share this sort of aesthetic quality and maybe this feminized them a little bit. They weren't quite adult men yet, and so that was still okay for their sort of presentation at that time. And so this is how you can tell. Also, sometimes, as on the Arapakis, the young people on that relief will be wearing this sort of necklace on their neck. And this is something that young boys would wear. It's called a bulla. And it was an apotropaic talisman. And that just means that it warded away evil or, or um, bad omens. And it was for young boys to show that they were protected in society and that they couldn't be hurt if they were of freeborn and citizen status, they wore that. And just to clarify, these were all male individuals, so no women were ever allowed to play either of these roles, be it for the Camilli or for the Victimari? So the figures that I looked at in the reliefs are probably male. 
This is because I argued that the reliefs show an ideal situation and they show a situation that would be the most in line with Roman norms. And because Rome was a patriarchy, often it was more normal or more normative to show a young boy playing a prominent role in sacrifice like this. There is actually proof that young women could play the role of the Camillus or the Camilla. And that's because in the major primary source we have about the Camilla, the earliest primary source that talks about this role, it's in Vero in his De Lingua Latina. And he specifically talks about a female Camilla, who is doing this role at a wedding. And so there were women who could fulfill this role and even adult women perform sort of acolyte or assistanty roles anyway. And so it's easy to see how younger women, maybe unmarried women could do this role and then transition seamlessly into the same sort of activity when they were adults. There's also evidence, particularly in the work of Irene Mantle, she shows that Camilla, so young women who played this role, would be part of fertility or particular rituals to do with Juno that had to do with more social roles and rituals associated with women. So fertility and marriage often would call on a young woman. But it was interesting that I couldn't find them explicitly shown as women on sacrificial reliefs. The ones that I looked at also for context were ones that were imperial. So they either had the emperor in them or they were particularly dedicated to a certain emperor. So I think that because of that sort of vaunted role that these reliefs had and their centrality and their very, very explicit normativity, that they would want to bend to the patriarchal norm just so that they could show the ideal that would align with this patriarchal ideal for the people who would be looking at these reliefs and wanting to repeat these actions in the future. And just talking about the idealization of these figures, do you find that this is a specifically imperial trope? Or is there evidence that this was a pattern that was developing in the Republican era and then was later adopted by Augustus and his successors? So these roles in sacrifice actually didn't have anything to do with the emperor or they weren't political in nature. They were just part of sacrifice. And so there are some reliefs from the Republican period that show a Camilla here or there or Camillus and some that show a Victimarius. But interestingly enough, I could only find big reliefs that show both of them in the same scene in the imperial period. I think this is partly because In the imperial period, and partly because of Augustus, emperors had a sort of impetus to show their religiosity and show it in a big way so that everyone could see and and they could prove to their audiences and the people that they ruled much more directly than they were ruled in the Republic that they were trustworthy rulers, that they were characters that, you know, they could be trusted and, and worshipped as they were. And so because of this, I think that they were trying to show fuller and more thorough scenes of sacrifice. And this is why you get both the Camillus and the Victimarius in these big monumental reliefs. And even in just the little altarpieces that I looked at as well, the ones that were dedicated to the emperor want to show a thorough, full image of the full sacrifice. The other part of this, and that does also have to do with Augustus, is that I have read into these depictions of youth in the sacrificial reliefs, ideas of futurity, which I think do start to become important as an artistic trope and as a political message, starting from Augustus and starting particularly from the Arapakis, where all of these images of young people sort of show this promise for prosperity in the future. The direct parallel to the Arapakis that I looked at in the paper was the Arch of Trajan in Beneventum, 
which specifically celebrates a welfare program that Trajan set up that was supposed to feed the children of Italy. Again, prosperity and futurity and a promise of nurturing are all themes that sort of are consolidated in the image of a child and of a young person and also of an adolescent person. And all of these stages of life are shown in the Camillus and in sort of other images, both on the Arapacus and the Arch of Trajan, which show multiple types of children on them. And so I think these are the reasons that we see them cropping up in the imperial period. You also mentioned that another reason for the Camilli or the Camilli being depicted is so that they can serve as a model for younger children to look up to and kind of understand what is expected of them were they to be in that position as an assistant to a sacrifice. Do you think these representations of Victimari played a similar role as well? Yes, I think that for the Victimari, it's a little bit different where because of their uh, lower class status, they had this opportunity to be part of an elite group when they were depicted in these sacrifices. They were put alongside really important figures, members of the imperial family, despite their low and sort of anonymous status. They weren't necessarily singled out as any people, even though some depictions of Camilli have been theorized to be relatives of the emperor. There's an arch of Septimius Severus that I didn't get into where his sons are specifically playing the role of the Camillus. But for the Victimarius, it's a lot more anonymous and it's a lot more symbolic, I think, that they are alongside these elite figures. And I think it might it could be interpreted as symbolic of upwards mobility or of sort of honor in an enslaved or a freedman context. This is specifically what Jack Lennon argues, who has written a big piece on Victimari specifically. Where I see some ambiguity with that is that I think that a symbol might be all it is of futurity and of mobility, because as much as these victimari are in with the elite circle, they're still also very intimately and artistically tied to the animals that they're guarding and they're dealing with. And so to talk about this idea, in my paper, I used this idea of interanimality, which is an idea from Donna Haraway that specifically talks about how when you dehumanize a figure based on their class or based on their marginalization, you sort of render them into a non, well, of course, when you dehumanize, you make someone non-human, but in these artistic reliefs, the other non-human elements, like the animals, the sacrificial animals, become intimately connected with them because they both occupy a liminal space where even the bull is very important to the sacrifice, but it's not a human being. And it's not something that's treated with equality or dignity in the same way that a fellow human being would be. And so this is where I think that there's this ambiguity with the victimarius and that they're both being honored, but they're also being put back in their place as a low status figure who's mostly fulfilling a purpose and is as disposable maybe as the sacrificial animal important central, but still, you know, on their way to death, used for their parts, and really not considered a whole human being in any sort of sense. You have literally just read my mind with that, because on my paper, literally, the next topic was Victimari turns into animal. I wanted to make sure that we covered it because it's so fascinating on the one hand, and a little bit depressing, but nevertheless, a useful insight, I think, into the kinds of knowledge that art history is able to offer us. But now, as we're heading into the end of the interview, tell us about the Arapacus. There has been a lot of build-up to this, we've been referencing it, I promise we would come back to it, and it's one of the most famous Augustan pieces that he has left in Rome for us. So please, the floor is yours. 
course, of course. The Arapacus, my beloved, is this altar to peace that Augustus set up. He vowed in 13 BCE and then finally finished construction in 9 BCE. And it is just this massive altar to the goddess of peace. And this was built and it came at a time after the dust had sort of settled from the civil wars, the overhaul, and all of the chaos that led to Augustus finally solidifying his power. So in many ways, it's a symbol of that solidification, of that confirmation that now there is a new sheriff in town, that now we are in a new sort of era. And he builds it on the Campus Martius, which used to be where the tribes would gather to vote. So this is kind of like It's a little bit symbolic because now there is no more voting because the Republic is gone. And so the Campus Martius has now become just this place for Augustus to place different things that symbolize his power. So the altar of peace is one in a line. The next thing is the Horologium, which is a big obelisk that was taken from Egypt. So again, symbolizing the Battle of Actium, the defeat of Cleopatra. And then after that is the Imperial family's mausoleum. And so this is literally where the family is buried, where their memory is kept alive. And there are a lot of parallels between that and the Arapakis, because the Arapakis, it has this big four-walled structure, and on either side of it is a different image. On the north and south faces of it are two processions that lead towards a sacrifice. On one side is the Roman imperial family, and on the other is a group of senators. On the east side of the wall, one of the friezes is lost, and then there's one which is either the goddess Tellus or Venus or just a female goddess surrounded by animals and bushels of fruit and vegetables, cornucopias, and she's holding two twin babies. And then on the west wall, there's one very fragmentary frieze, and then there's one that's of some hero and a priest, and then two young adolescent figures who are watching the sacrifice. And it was this freeze that sort of made me think about this paper and also sparked my interest in adolescence in general, because I'd never seen a physical depiction of kids who didn't look like tiny babies or toddlers, and they didn't look like the adults either, and there were adults in the same image to compare them to. They looked really, really immature, and they also looked like they were in the process of learning something, which is a trope, I think, that's associated with being young and with particularly with being sort of in that nebulous pre-adult stage. And so that was the freeze that started it all that I was really, really interested in that I talked about in many sort of papers. And that all sort of spiraled into this paper that sort of solidified a lot of my thoughts on it. But the Arapakis has been a very important little monument to me. I still have my ticket from when I visited and I pin it up on my board and I stare at it when I write my papers. But this is the monument that started it all. And for anybody who might have trouble visualizing this, I highly recommend just going on Google and searching Arapakis because there are some fantastic images out there, and they'll be a great complement to what Neha is describing here. Now for the last question of the day, can you leave us with your thoughts about what classics is? What does it mean to you? To me, classics is a really fascinating and concentrated look into the past, but it is also a field of study that has a lot of work to do. And I would like to really see it embrace new ideas and progressivism. And for me, it has been a source of so much great community and friendship and intellectual stimulation, but it's also been something that I've been really, really frustrated with in recent years. And so I think that if we as a discipline, as scholars who are committed to 
equity and diversity and enriching a discipline that has been so overrun by really harmful and colonial and racist and sexist ideas for so long, if we can band together and be very, very committed to approaching our study of the ancient world with a degree of openness and with a degree of progressivism, then I think that it could really, really be an amazing discipline and something that's really, really worthwhile for study, even more so than it is now. You've been listening to my conversation with Roman historian and Cambridge grad Neha Raman. Tune in next time to hear from Sarah Merker, who has just embarked on a PhD journey at Cornell. We'll be talking about Apuleius, who is a second century CE Latin author, and his self-defense in court. The entire case surrounds accusations of magic, murder, and a marriage for wealth. Until then, cover art for the podcast is produced by Taya Kendall, music by Matthew Hawkins. The podcast is supported by funding from the Arts Undergraduate Society of McGill. I'm Cindy Zhang, and thank you for listening to Tell Me Muse.